Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you today. And uh, how many of you like to finish well things that you've started? You like to do that? Yeah. I do too. We're all hoping that the Buckeyes will finish well tomorrow night. And uh, not all. Oh, okay. And we're going to finish well this morning a study in the book of James that we began uh, three months ago. And uh, today is the final installment of our series together. So if you have your Bible, turn to James chapter 5. If you need a Bible, we've got a rack of loaner Bibles right in the back here that you can hop up and you can grab one of those so you can follow along with us. There is a verse in the Bible that is quoted often by followers of Jesus Christ. It goes like this, pray without ceasing. Let's say that together, can we? Pray without ceasing. Ceasing, And a lot of Christians quote that verse, but I think it's misunderstood by a lot of followers of Jesus as well, because they think, well, I wonder what that really means, you know, pray without ceasing and how that really fleshes out in day to day life. I mean, what am I supposed to do? Does God want me to quit my job and leave my family and go off to a monastery somewhere and spend all day every day on my knees in prayer? Is that what he wants? Or if not that, does, uh, am I supposed to go through every day you know, with my hands folded and my eyes closed, uttering prayers to God? Wouldn't that make me a hazard out on the road you know, if I was doing that? Or how am I supposed to get my work done at work if my, if my eyes are closed, that sort of thing? Well, I think that this concept of unceasing prayer, praying without ceasing, is actually unpacked and explained for us in this final section of the book of James that we're looking at today, beginning with verse 13. I'd like us to see how he sheds light on this matter. So if you'll uh, just listen as I read this passage aloud, beginning with verse 13, it says this, is, is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick? He should call for the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. And if he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. We need like an Elijah these days, don't we, to to pray that the rain would stop for a little bit. Verse 18, and again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. Verse 19, my brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth, and someone should bring him back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Now, James is a good pastor. We learned that about him in in our very first week together. And as he finishes out his letter, you can kind of see his pastor's heart leaking out again as he closes by talking about the two subjects of prayer and rescuing people. And I think to summarize this section, what we could say is that James is saying this, take everything in your life, every situation, every circumstance in your life, and turn it into prayer. Go vertical with it. Turn to God in prayer. And I do believe this is possible. I believe it's possible to get to a point in your walk with God 
where your natural, involuntary, reflexive reaction to the things that go on into your life is to go, okay, Lord, (laughs) okay, God, what do I do here? What's going on here? Guide me here. Direct my steps here. Is to go vertical with every situation that happens in your life. It's kind of like atmospheric pressure that we are all subject to here as we live our lives on this earth. That pressure is, is... we don't, you know, experience it consciously, but it presses in on our bodies and it causes us to breathe. So we don't have to, you know, every moment say, uh, Steve, breathe. <gasps> okay, now breathe again. <gasps> you know, we don't have to do that. It's an involuntary reflex response to the atmosphere all around us. And I think James is saying something very similar. Let everything around you, let the atmosphere around you cause you to pray. Turn everything to God. John MacArthur says, prayer is the Christian's vital breath. Pray without ceasing. And in this passage, James gives us some examples of life situations that we face that we can and should turn into prayer. And here's the first one. Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Turn your troubles into prayer. Okay? Anybody ever get in trouble from time to time? Okay? Stress, problems, situations, right? James says, you know, take those troubles and turn them into prayer. He doesn't say, um, you know, go out and get drunk. (laughs) He doesn't say drown your troubles in in drink. He doesn't say uh, dull your pain through eating. He doesn't say mask your pain by entertaining yourself to death. I think James understood that when we Um, try to escape our problems or neglect them, it only makes them worse. It only compounds the issue. So he says what? Pray. Turn your troubles into prayer. So you say, okay, well, what do I say? What do I I say to God? Since prayer is talking to God, what do I say to God when I'm in trouble? Now, when I find myself in situations like this, I find that I like to say very astute, very theologically sophisticated prayers, like this. Help! (laughs) Help me, God. I need your help. Direct my steps. Give me your wisdom, Lord. Guide me. I'm yours. Help me. Deliver me. Give me your strength. Give me your wisdom. You ever find yourself praying prayers like that? Listen, prayer is just talking to God, like you'd talk to another human being, okay? You don't have to use flowery theological language to pray. You can just talk to God and and say what's on your heart. Turn your prayers into trouble. That's the first thing he says. (laughs) I'm in trouble now. (laughs) What did I say? Can you guys scratch that from the tape? Yikes. What I meant to say is turn your troubles into prayer. In his great book, Prayer Odyssey, Dave Early talks about a certain kind of praying that he calls spread it out before the Lord, prayer. And that phrase comes from the Bible. It comes from 2 Kings 19 where King Hezekiah of Judah was facing all kinds of problems and a particular nightmare right at the moment. 
And it says that he took all of his troubles and went to the temple of God and spread them out before the Lord. And Dave writes this, Spread it out before the Lord prayer is spreading your problems out before the Lord and letting him sort them out. It's replacing worry with prayer. It's making your worry list into your prayer list. It's refusing to worry because you're choosing to pray. It's turning every pressure and problem into prayer. It's casting all of your cares, casting all of your cares on him because he cares for you. And Dave wrote, when I do this, some simple yet wonderful things happen. My pressure turns into peace. My concerns turn into confidence. My burdens are lifted. My head is lifted. And I just feel better. Have you learned this yet? Turn your troubles, turn your troubles into prayer. Got that right. Then look at what he says. The second one's pretty cool. Verse 13, the second half. Is any of you happy? Let him what? Sing songs of praise. So he says, turn your happiness into praise. Which brings up an interesting question. What do you do when you're happy? (laughs) My kids get on me sometimes at home. They say, Dad, do you have to turn everything into a song? Because I guess I have this annoying habit around the house of grabbing onto some phrase that somebody just said and then taking a tune from my past, you know, and weaving them together beautifully and masterfully, I might add, (laughs) into a cute little song that I start singing and my kids are like, Dad, you have to turn everything into a song? And I think they're just jealous of my particular talent I have in this area. (laughs) It's like, I'm happy, okay? I'm just, I'm happy. And this is an, an outlet for my happiness. I want to I go vertical with my happiness in God. What do you do when you're happy? What are you known for doing? When your heart is full and things are going well, when your kids adore you and your spouse showers you with affection and your boss unexpectedly doubles your salary, what do you do? <laughs> When your coworkers are flush with admiration for all of your gifts, when your kids bring home good grades and your tax refund comes early, when spring actually springs and the sun is shining and the birds are chirping and life is good and all is well with your soul, what do you do? Praise the Lord. Praise God. <laughs> the Bible says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not. Forget not all of his benefits. God is good to me. Has God been good to you? James says, take that that joy, that happiness you feel within you and, and make up some songs. Sing praises to God. There is nothing wrong. Listen, there is nothing wrong with singing and making up songs and shouting praises to God when you're happy. That should be our outlet. Vertical with our happiness. If you can stand up and yell and make a fool of yourself because the Buckeyes win, then you can stand up and yell and make a fool of yourself and shout praises for Jesus Christ. If people think you're a fool, so be it. They're probably just jealous anyway. Turn happiness into praise. James says, look, If you're happy, go vertical with it. Turn that into praise. Tell people at work, hey, God is blessing my socks off and I'm pumped up. 
Turn everything into prayer. Now, the third thing he says in verse 14, is any one of you sick, he says. He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. What's he saying? Turn troubles into prayer, turn happiness into praise, and now he's saying turn your debilitating sickness into prayer. Ask for prayer. Now, commentators for centuries have been trying to understand the full meaning of, of this section. It's, it's uh, fascinating. James basically is saying, if you are sick, and the word here refers to a, a, an illness that is weakening you, okay? It's something that's hanging on, it's weakening you, it's wearing you out, and you're losing hope. If you're sick like that, then ask the leadership of your church, he says, to pray over you. In other words, instead of giving in to despair, exercise some faith by turning your illness into an occasion for prayer. It's interesting. It says to call for the elders of the church to pray over you. Do you see that? Call for the elders of the church. Now, this assumes something, doesn't it? It assumes that you are part of a church that has elders that you can go to. I have noticed, uh, to me, a troubling trend that's emerging in the church world over the last few years. And for lack of a better term, I'll call it the um, grand church buffet syndrome. Okay? Here's what I'm seeing. I'm seeing increasing numbers of people who follow Jesus Christ viewing church as kind of this this huge buffet, okay, where they can kind of pick and choose what they want from different churches without committing to any one church. So they're thinking to themselves, oh, man, I love the, I love the worship over here at this church, and I, but I like the children's program here at this church, and the teaching is awesome over here in this church, and the recovery group's over here and here and here and here. And they're picking and choosing like it's this big buffet, but not getting planted and committed in any one church. And that makes me queasy and not for the reasons that you might think. (laughs) My concern is that when someone views church that way, that what's happened is they've actually had their view influenced more by a consumer culture than by the Word of God. Because the Bible says that a, a local church is becoming a family, a family of brothers and sisters. The Bible calls it a body of interconnected members. And you can't have that without commitment. Commitment. And this, this notion that I kind of come and go as I please and move in and out and, and not get planted anywhere, I, honestly, I don't think the grand church buffet syndrome is, is in the scriptures. God calls us to get planted. Now, I know there's an investigating time, okay, where you're, you're realizing I, I'm checking something out and I'm praying about that, and that's great. Go through that time. It's necessary. But, but eventually... Get planted somewhere. (laughs) Sink down some roots. Get into some relationships. Start connecting with people. Start serving in a local church body. If not this one, then another one. Get planted somewhere. Around here, we call that commitment membership or partnership. And it signifies that that I'm here, I'm committed, I'm, I'm using my gifts and abilities here, and I'm under spiritual authority in this place. 
And James says, when, when that's the case, then if you find yourself with this physical condition, you can go to the elders of your church and ask to be prayed for. And I want you to know that, that we do this here. We, as the elders of this church, we pray for ill people in our church. In fact, we're doing it today, okay? Right after this service. If you fit the description, if you fit the category of what he's talking about, you can go to the prayer room in the back corner here, and some of our elders will be there, and they will pray over you. Now, if you do that, I want to tell you what's going to happen, okay? If you take that risk and walk into that room, because you're saying, I have that. I have this chronic physical condition that's hanging on. It's weakening me. It's wearing me out, and I'm starting to lose hope. Now, here's what's going to happen. The first thing is the elders are going to ask you to describe your condition, okay? They're going to say, what's... What brings you here? What's going on in your body? Tell us about it so they can pray more uh, intelligently. Then they're going to ask you a question. They're going to say, has God revealed to you any sins in your life that need to be confessed? Why? Well, this passage indicates that sometimes... Prolonged seasons of illness, of sickness, not all the time, but sometimes they are actually a discipline or a chastisement from God for a sinful lifestyle. Did you see that in there when we read it? Sometimes that's the case. And so it would only make sense that before you would ask for the effect to be removed, that you would deal with the cause, the behavior, the attitude. I don't know what it might be for you, you know, the habit the sinful response. And so they're going to ask that question. And if God has indeed shown you there's something in your life, you know, either he's been showing you this or he shows you it at that moment, I would encourage you to just humble yourself and get honest and reveal it to the elders and say, well, you know, to be honest, this is going on or this is going on or this is going on. And they will hear and receive that confession. After that, they will take some oil Anointing oil. You say, why? Because that's what it says to do in James chapter 5. They're going to take some oil, and they're going to anoint you with oil. Now, you know you don't have to take your clothes off or anything like that, okay? <laughs> what they're going to do is uh, dab some oil on their finger, and then they're going to trace the form of a cross on your forehead, okay? Isn't that cool? Form of a cross signifying the power of Jesus Christ. Now, in the scriptures, oil was often used in a symbolic way. It it pictured something. It symbolized the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. So when they anoint you with oil, they are, in effect, inviting the Holy Spirit into that room and into your situation right then and right there. So they'll anoint you with oil, and then they will pray over you. The elders of the church will pray over you. And they will pray for your healing if that's what you want. You know, the Bible does say to ask for the desires of our heart, right? And if God has put that in your heart, you can share that with the elders, and they will pray on your behalf that God will enter into your situation and heal you. So you say, okay, if I do that, will I be healed? Will I automatically be healed? I hope so. I hope so. God is is big enough and powerful enough to heal any disease. I hope that he will. 
You say, well, what determines whether or not God chooses to heal? Well, I comb through the scriptures, I find several things. One, the faith of the elders. It says the prayer of faith offered by the elders will save the sick. I believe there are certain occasions where God will speak directly to the elders who have their hands on you and they're praying for you, and God will speak to their hearts and say, this is one I want to heal. This is in my plan. This is in my purposes. I'm going to do this. And at that moment, those elders can pray with unbelievable faith that God's going to do it. So that's a factor. A second factor would be the sincerity of your confession of sin. A third factor would be the overarching the overarching purposes of God in your life. Now, as I said, certainly God has the ability to heal any kind of disease. I mean, after all, he spoke the world into existence. He's the great physician. He created our bodies. I'm just curious, how many of you could lift your hand and say, I am aware of a you know, certifiable, verifiable, miraculous, instantaneous healing? Someone I know or maybe in my, my own life have experienced that. Could I see your hands? Okay, look around the room. God has the power and ability to heal in a miraculous, instantaneous way. And when he does that, what should we do? We should praise God, shouldn't we? We should give all the praise and honor to Jesus Christ, take no credit for ourselves, and just say, you know, our God is is mighty to save. He is awesome. I have to say that in my experience, this miraculous, instantaneous kind of healing has, in my experience of 18 years of praying for people like this, been the exception rather than the rule. It's been relatively rare. I could probably count on two hands the number of times that that that's happened when I've prayed for people. And when it has happened, it's been like, (laughs) praise you, God, you are mighty, you are awesome. More often, what I've seen is a second kind of answer to this prayer that one man called a perseverance miracle. Here's what he wrote about it. He said, this second kind of miracle is the kind where God chooses not to supernaturally remove the problem. Instead, God gives his ongoing miraculous strength to enable us to persevere through the problem. This kind of miracle happened routinely in the Bible, and it still happens as frequently today. And he references some people in the Bible, like Trophimus and Epaphroditus and Timothy. And even Paul himself, who had serious physical issues, but God for his purposes and his reasons, chose not to heal him. You remember Paul? Talking about the writer of, you know, a good portion of the New Testament, the apostle. He had a a physical affliction, didn't he? He called it a thorn in the flesh, very likely his eyesight. He had poor eyes, is what a lot of commentators think was his thorn in the flesh. And it says three times he asked God to, to, to heal him, to take that affliction away. You know, God take this away, heal me, I'd I'd be so much more useful to you in your service. What did God say? No. Oh, come on, God! I could be like awesome for you if I could just see clearly. I can't even see the people I'm talking to. No. Oh, God, come on! I'm I'm, I'm your guy, you know, I'm I'm, going to write half of your New Testament. Heal me! God said, no, Paul, I'm not going to do it. I want you to learn that my grace is sufficient for you. 
And then between the lines, besides that, Paul, I know you. You're a type A, you know, driven kind of a guy. And if I, if I heal you, I, you're going to be out there. I want to keep you on a short leash, Paul. <laughs> I want to keep you close and dependent so that you're relying on me every day, every day, every day. And I'll give you my grace. I'll give you my strength. And you're going to make it. I um, read a section of a book this week by Philip Yancey. Neat book called Prayer. Does it really make any difference? And I find that I, I come to agree with a lot of his conclusions on this subject. He says, first of all, we should all praise God for designing our bodies to heal themselves. I mean, we, we take this for granted sometimes, but he has desi- he's put the healing agents within us, hasn't he? It's amazing. You know, you get a cut or a bruise or something, and in a few days it's all it's healed. And he says, man, let's... He calls that the inbuilt miracle of God. And let's not forget to praise God for designing our bodies that way. Then he says, it's unwise, generally, and I agree with him, it's unwise to refuse medical treatment in the name of faith, since medical practices can and do assist the body in healing itself. I would say if you're going to refuse medical treatment for your, your child or your son or daughter, yourself, in the name of faith, you better be very, very, very sure that that you believe you've heard from God, (laughs) that he's told you to do that. I think generally speaking, it's unwise to do that. God's given us the medical profession as a gift. We can praise him for. I also agree with him when he says there's no formula prayer that always guarantees a healing from God. There isn't. There's no mantra you can chant. There's no set of words you can string together and say to God that makes him do your will. And that's not really what it's all about anyway, right? We're here to do his will and align with his will. I don't think there is a formula. I agree with him when he says it's a mistake to presume that God must always heal miraculously and instantaneously. Now, sometimes he does. But to presume upon God, I think, is unwise. And then last, he says... um, Since in many situations we don't know the mind of God, we should go ahead and avail ourselves of the elder's prayer. Because the worst thing that can happen is that you will have an experience of being profoundly loved on by the leaders of your church. You say, well, what if I do that after the service? What if I go back there? What's the worst case scenario? The worst case scenario is that you'll be prayed for by some leaders in your church who love you and care about you. That's it. And you might just hear the voice of the great physician whispering to you, go in peace, be freed of your illness. So I hope that you do. I hope that uh, if you find yourself in this situation with a chronic, ongoing physical affliction, that you'll avail yourself of this, and after the service you'll go and receive prayer from our elders. Turn your troubles into prayer. Turn your... Did I get that right? Yeah, turn your troubles into prayer. (laughs) Turn your happiness into praise. Turn your sickness into an occasion to be prayed for. Number four, turn times of transparent sharing into prayer. Therefore, verse 16, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Now, I see something interesting here. He links confession of sin, prayer, 
and health, healing. Do you see that? Confess your sins to each other. Pray for one another so that you may be healed. Confession, prayer, health. I I think the Catholics were on to something. Confession is good for the soul. It's good for the body. The thing that I hope our Catholic friends come to understand is that it doesn't have to be confession to a priest. He says, confess your sins to each other, to fellow Christ followers in your church or in your small group, and do this not in order to be forgiven by God, that comes from confessing your sins directly to God, but do this in order to be healthy and to be part of a healing community. I just, I just think that a, a mark, a primary identifying mark of a healing community is that people are getting honest and transparent with each other and getting to the point where they're sharing on a heart level. You understand what I'm saying? Confess your sins to one another. Well, that's not just going to happen probably your first night of small group. Hey, everybody, I'm Steve, and um, I'm addicted to porn. That's probably not going to happen that first night, is it? What he's talking about here, I, I think what he's saying is when you come together in your gatherings, and specifically in your small groups, work to create the kind of climate, the kind of atmosphere and environment where masks are coming off and defenses are coming down and people are getting to the point where they're sharing heart-level stuff, hurts and habits and hang-ups and failures and, yes, even sins. And he says, if you, if you can get to the point in your church community where you're doing that, it's going to be a healthy place. It's going to be a healthy place. You guys know that from time to time, even in this setting, I share with you some of my weaknesses and foibles and mess-ups and sins. And that's good for me to do that. It's good for you to hear it. We need to to become a church where we're getting to this level, where this can happen, what he's talking about here. Because that is what a healing community does. James basically says this, regular honest confession followed by prayers for restoration are vital elements of a healthy church community. So seek to create and maintain that kind of high-trust climate. You'll be healthier if you do this, plus you'll help other people get healthier too. And I found that it starts with the leader. It always starts with the leader. If you're a leader of a group and and you're not getting there, don't expect that the people in your group will get there. But if you do, just wait and see. Just wait and see what God does. Is it like 800 degrees in here? I'm about ready to, I won't. All right, last section, okay? Um, There's a few things that James says to close out his letter that I want us to take note of. And they have to do with praying for the whole church community. You ever pray for your church? I hope that you do. I know Debbie does. (laughs) First thing he says is, hey, don't forget about the powerful tool you have in prayer. Verse 16, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. And then he says, let me give you three things to pray for for your church community, okay? Real quickly, verse 17, Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. 
Does anybody know why Elijah prayed that it would stop raining? In that day, in the agricultural society in which they lived, rain was viewed as God's blessing, okay, on a, on a culture, on a town, on a community. Rain symbolized God's blessing, and now Elijah's praying for no rain. Why? Because God's people had turned away from him in rebellion. And so Elijah is praying that God would withhold blessing from his people. And so James references that and he says, look, when God's people are resisting his will, ask God to purify them by withholding his blessing. (laughs) So we should do that. Those seasons when we sense that our church body isn't following hard after God or we're deviating from his path, we should pray, God, withhold your blessing. Why? So that we'll get desperate and seek after God. Then the nation of Israel turned back to God Verse 18, again he prayed, this is years later now, and the heavens gave rain and the earth produced its crops. So after God's people have repented and turned back to him, ask God to refresh his people with renewed blessing. God, send your rain again. Send your blessing again. Pray for your church this way, would you? You can pray for me this way if you ever think to pray for me. Pray that God will refresh me with his blessing because I need that. And then the last thing he says, and he closes out his letter, and he kind of bears his soul a little bit about some people. Verse 19, My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth, someone who's straying, and someone should bring him back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. You know what he's saying here? He's saying, pray for all the prodigals. God wants all of his prodigals back home. You believe that? What's a prodigal? Everybody look at me. I know it's warm. Hang in there for a couple more minutes, okay? What's a prodigal? Prodigal is someone who grew up in church, grew up in a Christian family, knows the stuff, knows the truth, and at some point in time said, I am out of here. <laughs> Gets disgusted with it all. Says, give me everything that's coming to me. I'm out of here. I'm going to go live life the way I want to live it. And there are prodigals who grew up in this church, maybe in your family. They've turned their back. They've said, I'm, I'm out of here. They're going the way of the world. And James says, do not forget about the prodigals. Don't act like they're not there. Don't pretend they don't exist. In fact, he's basically pleading, go after them. (laughs) Go after the prodigals. You know, they used to be with you. They used to, to be in youth group. They used to sit next to you in church. They were in your small group, and now they're gone. Don't forget about them. Go after them. And because this whole section is on prayer, I have to believe that James would, would look at us and say, you know where it starts? It starts with praying. Pray for the prodigals to come home. You know any prodigals? How do you pray for them? Well, think about the story for a minute, the prodigal son. There's this great phrase. After he'd squandered everything that was given to him, he's sitting in the pig pen, right? And it says, he came to his senses. (laughs) Can't you see him? He's like... What was I thinking? 
Life was so much better back in the Father's house. What am I doing? I, maybe, maybe if I went back, maybe they would accept me. Pray that prodigals will come to their senses and hit the road back to the Father's house. Sometimes that, you know, coming back home, coming back to God, coming back to church. There's a new movement I've been reading about that some churches are, are embracing and grabbing hold of. It's called the Prodigal Friendly Church. I'd like to be one, wouldn't you? I'd like to be a prodigal friendly church. Someone could come back to when God's getting a hold of their life. Say, well, what, what's in a prodigal friendly church? Well, one thing that's absent is the spirit of the older brother. The condemning, judgmental spirit of the older brother. It was like, um, what are you doing here? You know, you left us. What are you doing back here? We don't want you. But the father's heart was what? Come on. <laughs> He's home. My son who was gone is home. Let's be a church that prays for its prodigals to come back home. 